thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word. Repentance. Repentance is one of the most important words in the Bible. Uh, It's definitely one of the most important words for us to understand. But even more important than that, it's an important concept that we must actually do. But it's something that many people are not willing to do. And, you know, there are people who think that they understand what repentance is, but they really don't. And so they feel like they are repentant when the reality is they're not because they have a skewed understanding of what it actually means. And so for many people, repentance is a word that makes them feel uncomfortable or they kind of associate it with the, you know, hellfire brimstone preacher who's repent, you know, the, the concept that comes to mind. But um, you basically have three different types of people. First, you have people who understand repentance, but they choose not to do it. Second, you have people who think they understand repentance and think they're doing it, but the reality is they don't. And then third, you have people who understand what it is, and they also are willing to make a choice to do it. Now, I'm sure in all of our lives, I know in my life, I could be under each one of these categories. There was definitely a portion of my life where I thought I knew what repentance was. Uh, I thought I was doing it, but the reality was I was ignorant to it and I wasn't really doing it. Uh, but then when I discovered what it was, all the way until now, I still struggle with the other two realities of I know what it is, but yet I have to make a choice as to whether or not I'm willing to do it. Uh, and that's kind of the struggle that we have. And hopefully as we look at what we're going to look at this morning, we will discover what repentance is and will leave us with that place of, are you willing to choose to repent or will you choose not to repent? Now, Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was addressing 11 different areas of sin in the Corinthian church. And the ultimate goal of that letter wasn't just to point out the sin. It was to hopefully lead them to a place where they would recognize their sin and then repent of it. Well, here in chapter 7, we're going to see that... Paul is going to focus on the repentance that the Corinthians actually do have from that first letter. Uh, he's going to share with us what repentance is and what it's not. Uh, and then he's going to share with us how repentance brings great comfort. The first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians are all about comfort. So far, Paul has given us six different areas in which we can take comfort. And, you know, we don't often associate comfort and repentance together, but Paul's going to bring some great truth to us that we can understand that when we personally repent, it should bring comfort. But also when we see other people that we know that are in sin, when they come to a place of repentance, that should also bring comfort to us. And now the reality that each one of us sins on a regular basis brings a reality that each one of us is faced with a choice. Will we repent of that sin 
or not. And so hopefully, as we look at what we're going to look at here in chapter 7, not only will we see that it brings comfort to us, but hopefully it will motivate us to do what God desires us to do, and that is to choose to repent of our sin. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Chapter 7, starting in verse 2, says this, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul starts off here asking the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. You see, the Corinthians had many of them closed their heart to Paul. And for some of them, it was because they had bought into some different lies that people who were against Paul and against Paul's ministry were saying about him. And so, you know, they kind of were close hearted to Paul. And he's saying, hey, you guys, I want you to have an open heart to me. And then he gives them a reminder of why they have no reason to close their heart. He says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. He's basically saying, hey, there's nothing that we have done that would lead you to a place where you would say, well, I'm going to close my heart to Paul because look at this. Say, no, there's nothing we've done or that we're guilty of that should have brought you to that place. And so I encourage you to open your hearts. But then he goes on to say, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You know, Paul's desire, it wasn't to condemn the Corinthians. And and if you read 1 Corinthians, you can kind of conclude that reality. But he's saying, no, that wasn't my heart. My heart wasn't to condemn. It was that you would ultimately restore myself and you and yourself and God back to fellowship that we once had. You see, Paul really loved the Corinthian Christians and he reminds them, you're in my heart to live together. I love you guys and you're in my heart. My heart's been open to you and I encourage you to have your heart open to me as well. Now to try to connect with them even more, Paul is going to share with them how encouraged he is by the good news that he has heard about them. And he shares this in verses four through seven. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul starts off saying something here. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Now, I'm sure that many of the Corinthians, when they probably thought of Paul and his boldness, they probably just thought of Paul in the fact that he was bold to rebuke. He wrote this letter with 11 different rebukes for the sin that was in their life, and they probably thought, yeah, Paul, you're real bold when it comes to rebuking us. But here Paul reveals something about him that was a great balance. Yes, he was willing to rebuke when the sin was there and was needed to be done. But also we see here that he says, great is my boldness of speech towards you and great is my boasting on your behalf. Not only am I willing to boldly rebuke when I see sin, I'm also willing to boldly boast and praise when I see the good things that are in your life. 
And this is something that I think is so important here that Paul has a great balance of being bold enough to rebuke when it's necessary and bold enough to praise when he sees the good things that are going on in the lives of the Corinthians. And this balance is something that is important for us to have because we often struggle with this. You know, there are people who are bold when it comes to rebuke. They're willing to get out there and tell someone who's in sin that they're in sin and they got no issue with that, but they really struggle with ever praising or encouraging or saying, hey, there's this positive good thing in your life. Well, I'm ready to point out the negatives. I'm ready to jump on your sin, but I never really address the positive stuff. And that is not a good balance. And then on the other side of the coin, you have people who are unbalanced in the opposite way. Oh man, they love to encourage. They love to praise. They'll build you up about everything good in your life. But if you're in sin and need to be called out on it, don't expect them to do it because that's not an area where they're ever going to say anything. They're just going to say, you're so wonderful. But even when there's areas that you need to be challenged in, they won't stand up and give a rebuke. And that lack of balance is not good. You see it a lot in parents. There are many parents who struggle with this, who, you know, you have the real ones that are kind of viewed as the, the harsh ones. They're always focused on discipline, disciplining their kids and, and rebuking their kids and, and very rarely are encouraging and praising their kids for the positive things that they see. And then you got the other side of the coin where you got parents who are just, oh, you're so wonderful and great and, and everything, but never deal with the sin in their kid's life, never discipline them. And, you know, there needs to be a good balance in the middle of, hey, You need to be disciplined when you're sinning and you need to be rewarded and praised when you're doing things good. And the challenge here for us is, are we able to do that? Uh, And I want you to think about something that's important because when you take the time to encourage someone and to praise them for the good things in their life, they are much more willing to listen to you when you actually need to come and address a sin in their life. Because if all you ever do is address people's sin, they don't really believe that you care about them. They don't really believe that you love them. You've never said anything kind. You never encourage them in what they're doing that's good. And if all you're doing is coming against the negative things, there's usually kind of a wall of, you know, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. But if you're an encourager of people and you bring up the good things and you say and praise them for that, then all of a sudden when you do need to come and, and, and bring out a sin, they're much more willing and accepting of, hey, well, I know that you always encourage me. And so I'm going to take what you say here and hopefully uh, really allow it to be a challenge that I might change in. And so Paul had this good loving balance. And I think that's something that we want to have as well as we're going and dealing with people and addressing sin issues. Have a balance where you're willing to praise the good, but also willing to boldly rebuke the sin. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now those those statements don't really seem to go together. Oh, I had this great comfort and, and now I'm speaking about tribulation. But Paul's not saying his comforts in the tribulation in itself. There was comfort more specifically in something else. Notice what he goes on to reveal why he has such comfort For indeed, when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, 
And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. You see, Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, the letter of rebuke, while he was in Ephesus. And he doesn't know how they've responded. They've received that letter. His hope is there's repentance. His hope is there's change. But he doesn't know what's transpired. And so he sends Titus on his behalf because he was doing ministry in Ephesus and he couldn't leave. And so he says, Titus, I'm going to send you over to Corinth. I want you to minister to them. But I also want to know how have they responded to this letter that I've sent. Now, they didn't live in the time that we do. So Titus couldn't just show up, get out his cell phone and say, hey, Paul, Things are good. You know, Titus gets there and Paul still doesn't know what's going on. He's waiting for Titus and him to get back together so he can hear the news of whether it's good news or bad news on whether or not the Corinthians responded well to his letter. So he starts in Ephesus. He sends Titus away. He's doing ministry. Titus is still gone. God leads him to the region of Macedonia. And as he gets to Macedonia, it's a very, very difficult ministry. He says, our bodies had no rest. We're troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside are fears. And so this is a a difficult place. If you remember in the book of Acts, he suffered a lot in this region But there was a comfort that happened while he was there. As he's going through all this difficulty in ministry, Titus shows up. And Titus comes with a message of what was happening in Corinth, of how they had now responded to the letter that Paul had written to them to rebuke them of their sin. And notice what Paul says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consultation which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Titus brings a great message to Paul. Hey, Paul, the Corinthians, let me share with you some of the ways they responded to the letter that you wrote First of all, they have an earnest desire and a zeal for you, Paul. And that would be encouraging. And I'm sure any of you who have ever had to be in a place where you rebuke someone, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's in a letter or email or whatever, you're worried about how are they going to respond. Probably the night before, you don't get much sleep. It's not something that's pleasant. It's not something that we enjoy. We just realize this is important. This person needs to be have this addressed in their life. And so we kind of wonder, how are they going to respond? Are they going to want nothing to do with us? Because that's somehow sometimes how people respond. You, you bring out a sin and they just kind of you know distance themselves from you. They don't want anything to do with you anymore. How dare you say those things to me? Who are you to judge? You know, we hear all sorts of things that come. And so I'm sure Paul was wondering, is my relationship still intact? Do these people still want to have a relationship after I pointed out 11 serious sins that were in that church? And so the news that they still earnestly desire to have a relationship with him, that they still have zeal for him, would have been an encouragement to Paul. But something even more than that, we're told here that they also were mourning. There was a response to their sin as they read and they see, wow, look at this stuff that's in our church right now. It wasn't like, who does he think he is telling us that? There was a mourning, a recognition of this is wrong and we shouldn't continue in it. But you know what? The biggest thing that Paul was encouraged by is in verses 8 through 10. 
For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, Paul starts off saying something kind of interesting. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, speaking of the first Corinthians letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. It seems to be saying, you know, contradictory things. I, I don't regret it, but I did regret it. But notice that he's using present tense and then he's using past tense. He starts off with, um, a present tense where he says, I do not regret the fact that my letter made you sorry. And that's because now he has heard how they've responded. Hey, now that I know that you guys have repented, that you guys have responded in a godly way, I don't regret at all sending you that letter because the letter has the desired effect that it was supposed to have. You guys have repented. But when he's speaking in the past tense of, I did regret it, when I sent it to you and I didn't know how you were going to respond, there was some regrets of like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to our relationship? How are they going to respond? And so he's kind of just dealing with the reality of before he knew versus after he knew, and he's excited for the response that they have had. But um, you see, Paul recognized something about sorrow. He knew the letter was going to make them sorry. That was a reality as he read 11 different sins in their church. He he knew this was something that was going to come, but he also recognized there's two different types of sorrow, two different types of being sorry about something. There is godly sorrow and there is worldly or ungodly sorrow. And Paul wasn't sure which kind of response the Corinthians were going to have to his letter. Were they going to respond in a godly, sorrowful way? Or were they going to respond in a worldly, ungodly, sorrowful way? And Paul goes on to explain the two different types of sorrow. And this is very important for us because I mentioned there are people who think they are repenting, who think they understand what repentance is, but they really don't. And Paul is going to help us understand there are those who sorrow in the wrong way. It leads to the wrong thing. It's not true repentance. And so let's see the difference between what godly sorrow does versus what worldly sorrow does. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. I'm not rejoicing that you guys are sorry, that that wasn't the goal. I didn't write this letter to make you feel bad. And I think maybe sometimes when we rebuke people that that's that's their thought. You just want me to feel bad. No, the ultimate goal isn't to make you feel bad. The ultimate goal is to lead you to repentance. That is what was Paul's goal. And he rejoiced because their sorrow led them to repentance. And he goes on to say, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So here Paul is explaining the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And the main difference is in what does it produce? 
the, the sorrow, the feeling, the, 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 the sadness that's in you, what does it produce? Because what it produces will reveal whether it's godly sorrow or whether it's worldly sorrow. You see, something we need to understand is that godly sorrow will always produce repentance. Worldly sorrow will not produce repentance. It actually produces ultimately death. You see, something we need to understand is that being sorry does not mean that you are being repentant. The two words are, are very different, very different in their meaning and definition. The Greek word translated sorrow means to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to make one uneasy, to make sorrowful. So someone is sorry when they have been caused grief, when they're uneasy, when they're sorrowful. Sorry is a feeling. It's a feeling of sadness. It's a feeling of grief. But repentance is something very different. The Greek word translated repentance means to turn away from something, a change of mind and purpose. So someone is repentant when they're willing to turn away from the thing they're repenting of. Not just to turn from it, but also to have a change of mind and purpose toward it. Not, oh, I'm turning from it, but I still so desperately want it. There's a, a complete turning, not only physically, but also mentally from the thing that you want. So sorry is a feeling and being repentant is an action. When you're sorry, you feel bad. When you're repentant, you turn away from the thing that you feel bad and stop doing it. And there's a big difference between the two. Now, I'm sure all of us have had times in our life where we have been sorry, but not repentant. Where we have felt the, the sorrowful feelings, we're upset, we're grieved, but it didn't lead us to a place where we turned away from the thing that we felt those sorrowful feelings towards. You know, I'm sure you could look at your life. I know in my life there have been many times where I was sorry, but not repentant. I remember when I was in my teenage years, I grew up living next to a retired Marine Corps colonel. And if you've ever seen A Few Good Men, the, the colonel there who's like really, really harsh. This was totally this guy who lived next to us. But, you know, he was retired and he didn't really have much to do after he retired. And so he just loved to take care of his yard. He mowed it all the time. He trimmed it. It was like he had flowers. And it's kind of funny to see a colonel doing all that. But he loved it. He didn't want anything to, to mess that up. And we lived in a cul-de-sac and we had a basketball hoop right next to his house there. And we played basketball. And sometimes our ball would go into his yard. And this made him quite upset because he wanted his yard to be so pristine and so he's in there one time, our ball goes in there, he throws it back at us, has some choice words, don't let your ball go in again, obviously we can't really control when we miss shots, our ball goes in again, he pulls a knife out and punctures our ball, and then throws it back at us, and so we decide uh, after a few nights that we were going to get a little revenge, and so... We got some of our friends, we went out and bought 50 rolls of toilet paper, and we wanted to toilet paper this yard that he loves so much, uh, and we worked in twos because, you know, you get one person who holds the end of the, the toilet paper, you throw it over a branch to the other person, they catch it, and they throw it back and forth, and, you know, we're about 25 rolls in, and it's already pretty white in this yard, uh, and then we hear their dog bark, and at that point in time, we had to make a decision, you know, are we going to continue, or are we going to go, and we think, well, we want 50 rolls in this house, so we continue to go, which turned out to be a bad decision because uh, the dog woke up the colonel who comes outside, has very choice words for us, makes us clean up the mess. And then my dad finds out about it the next day, tells my brother and I, you have to go over there and you have to say you're sorry. 
Well, my brother and I go and we say are sorry, but or say we're sorry, but we definitely were not repentant. Uh, actually, in the next couple of years, we probably toilet papered his house another 10 times. So there, there was no real repentance. We felt this guy deserved it. We were not sorry. We only did it because we were caught. We did not do it because we actually wanted to turn away from the thing that we did that was wrong. And so the reality is we can be in a place where we feel bad. And for many of us, we're just feeling bad that we got caught. We're not so much feeling bad that we did it. We don't like the consequences of being caught because we did it. And that's just being sorry. And it's just a worldly sorrow because it doesn't lead to what God wants it to lead us to, a place of repentance where we recognize it's wrong and seek to turn away from it and stop doing it. And so all of us here who have siblings, I'm sure many times you were forced by your parents to say sorry when you weren't repentant. I see this with my girls a lot. Uh, and you can just tell in their attitude, there's no repentance. They're just doing it because they're forced to do it. And so we're all guilty of that. And we need to recognize that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when rep- uh, uh, our sorrow leads us to repentance. Alan Redpath, a great pastor and commentator, said this about godly sorrow leading to repentance. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to a change of purpose, of intention, and of action. It is not the sorrow of idle tears. It is not the crying by your bedside because once again you have failed, nor is it vain regret, wishing things had never happened, wishing you could live the moments again. No, it is not that. It is a change of purpose and intentions, a change of direction and action. All of us are sinners. When we sin, hopefully, we have grief. We have feeling of sorrow. We recognize there's something wrong that we've done. But the question is, is that leading us to a place of repentance? Worldly sorrow produces death. Because it's not willing to repent to God. You see, the the foundation of the gospel is repentance. John the Baptist, when he did his ministry, his main ministry was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, he said the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Peter preached the first sermon after Jesus uh, was resurrected, it started with a repentance message. Repentance has been called the first word of the gospel because it is such a vital aspect of the good news. You need to recognize you're a sinner. You need to recognize what God has done for your sin. But ultimately, the choice is yours. Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to accept Christ, repent, and turn away from the lifestyle and sin that you used to do? Now, I think for us as believers, we need to recognize repentance doesn't stop at salvation. Oh, yeah, I can remember the day I got saved. I can remember the day I chose to repent. But yet every day we sin. And so every day we still are faced with a choice. Am I going to come to God and ask for forgiveness and repent of my sin and turn away from the things that I'm doing? That that is the choice that each of us have to make. Well, Paul was very comforted. 
He rejoiced. Why? Because he sends a letter of rebuke to the Corinthians to help them see their sin, to lead them to a place where hopefully they have a godly response to the sorrow that they had, which is repentance. He finds out they repent and it comforts him. He's glad because the motive that he had was right. You know, some of us were just like, man, I just want to tell you you're a sinner because I want you to suffer when that shouldn't be the motive. The motive should be, I want to share this with you so ultimately you'll repent and change and it'll be better for you and everybody else as well. I think something else important to note, not only does Paul rejoice when the Corinthians uh, repent, but it's something that God rejoices when anyone repents. Second Peter 3.9 shares with us something very important. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his son counts slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He wants you and I to come to a place where we repent before him. He doesn't want anyone to perish in hell. That's not his desire. That is not what he wants. He longs for everyone to recognize their sin, to recognize what he has done to deal with their sin, and to make a choice to turn away from their sin and repent. God's word is full of warnings, it's full of rebukes, it's full of corrections, all for the sake of bringing us to a place where we have sorrow that leads to repentance, not just sorrow that doesn't lead to anything, but just continuing in that sin. That is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. So if this morning you have some sin in your life that you're feeling grieved about, you feel bad, there's a, there's a sorrow in you because you're doing it. The question I want to pose to you is, has that sorrow produced repentance? Because if it hasn't, that's not godly sorrow. It's not doing what ultimately it needs to do. If all it is is I feel bad that I'm doing this, but I'm just going to continue in it, then you've missed the point. That sorrow should lead you to a place where you say, God, this is wrong. I'm sorry I've done this, and I need you to help me change doing this. I think important to remember is God desires that all will repent, but he doesn't force anyone to do it. You know, this is that interesting relationship that we have with God of him giving us this free will to choose of, hey, I want all of you to be repentant, but I will not force you. It's a choice that you have to make. You have ch- uh, chosen to sin, and now you must make a choice to repent, to turn away from your sin. The great thing is that God is there to give us all we need to do it, but he won't force us to do it. Sorrow brings short-lived feelings. Repentance brings lasting change. And that's what we need to have, the lasting change of turning away, not just the feeling of being sad. So Paul rejoiced that the Corinthians responded with repentance, and now he's going to encourage them with, there are seven things that repentance produces. Not only is it great to see someone that you've rebuked turn to uh, respond by repenting, but also he says, hey, there's some wonderful things that repentance produces in us, and he shares those things here in verse 11. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligent it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. Paul wants us to realize, hey, godly sorrow produces repentance and repentance produces wonderful things in our lives. First, he says, repentance produces diligence. 
Repentance is to turn away from something, but in order to continue to stay turned away, there is a diligence that comes with that. As I, I, you know, cause we're still tempted. You know, I've turned away from this. I don't want to do this anymore, but there's a reality that the temptation is there. And the, the more we repent, especially of a particular sin, there is a diligence that is uh, brought up in us to hopefully continue to stay away from that. So, The first thing that repentance produces is a diligence to turn away from your sin. Second, Paul tells us repentance produces a clearing of yourselves. When we repent, it produces this clearing of the guilt and the shame that are there from the fact that we have sinned because we know that we have brought God, uh, brought sin upon God and, you know, we repent. We turn away from that and there's this wonderful clearing. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from unrighteousness. He makes us, as the Bible says, white as snow. So second, repentance produces a clearing of guilt and shame from our sin. Third, Paul tells us repentance produces indignation. Yeah, this is an interesting word. You maybe wouldn't associate it with repentance, but indignation means to be angry and resentful at an offense. And this is, I think, one of my big problems, and maybe yours as well, that we don't see sin the way God does. You see, God has anger towards sin. God sees sin in a very negative light. He sees what it truly does. And so there is a righteous anger that God has towards sin. Uh, and there's a, uh, you know, that's what we need. What we need as we approach and see sin, oftentimes our problem is we long for it and it's tempting to us and we, we desire it as opposed to seeing it for what it really is. And we have anger towards it and resent it and say, I want nothing to do with it. You know, and that's my prayer of Lord, help me to see sin for what it is so that I could truly have this indignation. But you know what? As we repent, we've fallen into that sin and we come to a place where we repent. It, it brings this. It helps us get to that place where we realize the consequences of the sin. We realize the problems it brings. And all of a sudden there's this good, righteous anger that comes towards that of, I don't want to do this again. I don't want the consequences of this again. And so this is a positive thing that helps repentance to last. I think this feeling is very healthy for us to have towards sin. So third, repentance produces anger and resentment towards our sin, which ultimately encourages us not to continue in it. Fourth, repentance produces fear. You know, when we sin, I think there's a, just like there's a healthy anger, there's a healthy fear. We should fear the reality that we are weak. We should fear the reality that we will give in to temptation if we're not careful and protect ourselves. And so I think, you know, there's a healthy fear. And oftentimes we don't have a great enough fear of certain sins and certain tempting situations. And so we place ourselves in those tempting situations. And we're so shocked when we give in to it, when the reality is if we really had a good fear of I cannot be there. I don't want to be there. It is too tempting for me. I know if I'm in that situation, I'm going to give in to that. And that's a healthy fear of saying, you know what? I'm going to protect myself from those people. I'm going to protect myself from that place. And I'm not going to do that because I realize my own weakness. I realize my own failures. I realize how many times I failed in the past in that same sin. And so I am going to have a healthy fear of that sin and design the way in which I live to make sure I protect myself from that. And so fourth, repentance produces a fear of our own weakness towards sin and what it can do to us. 
Fifth, Paul tells us repentance produces vehement desire. This word means a huge longing for something. You know, I think there's as well this reality that when we repent, it gives us a longing to stop doing that sin, but also a longing to really be pure in the eyes of God. And so fifth, repentance produces a longing to stop the sin that we're in. Sixth, Paul tells us repentance produces zeal. Zeal is a passion and enthusiasm for something. And, you know, when we repent, it produces a passion and enthusiasm in us, you know, against sin, but also for God. Because here's the problem. When you're, you know, indulging in sin, you really can't have the same kind of zeal for God because ultimately your zeal is given uh, towards that sin, at least in some way, shape, or form. And so to have a fully given zeal to the Lord, you can't be distracted by giving yourself over to different sinful things in your life. And so when you repent of those things and turn from those things, all of a sudden now you have your zeal that can be totally devoted to the Lord and no longer devoted to indulging in sinful things. And so six, repentance produces a passion and an enthusiasm for God and against sin. And finally, seventh, Paul says this, repentance produces vindication. Vindication means to clear someone of blame and guilt. You know, when you and I repent, it frees us from the blame. It frees us from the guilt that sin brought us. We are vindicated as Christians, even though we have sinned, because the measure of whether we're a Christian is not if we sinned or not, but if we've come to God in repentance. So seventh, repentance produces a freedom from the guilt and blame the sin brought us. So Paul is already encouraged that, you know, the Corinthians responded with repentance and it comforted him. And now we see even more reason personally, and when we look at other people's lives, to be comforted because we realize, oh, the, the, the response that biblically they should have is repentance. But here Paul also helps us see, but there's a lot of good, positive things that are connected with that, that we should be comforted by. And so when you make a choice to repent of your sin, understand these wonderful things are associated with that choice, and that should hopefully bring comfort to you. Well, now Paul is going to share us with us what ultimately motivated him to write 1 Corinthians here in verse 12. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians, I can see why someone could conclude, hey, Paul wrote this specifically for the person who was in sin or the people who were in sin, or he wrote it for the people who had suffered the, the wrongdoing because of the others who were in sin. But Paul says, really, ultimately, neither of those were the ultimate desire, motivation, reason for writing 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, Paul wrote it ultimately to show them how much he cared for them. Yeah, and this is something that I think is so important to remember because we don't often associate a rebuke, a clear pointing out of our sin with someone who cares. We think, oh, that's someone who's just judgmental. That's someone who just doesn't like me. That's someone who's just trying to get at me. At me. When in all reality, that can be true with some people, but Paul wants them to understand, I love you. And the reason I wrote this to correct you is because I love you. Just like a parent loves their child and is willing to discipline. Just like the Bible says, God disciplines those that he loves. There is a love that comes with correction that should come with correction. And Paul wants them to understand, that's the ultimate reason I wrote, because I love you guys. 
and I wanted to encourage you in that. Paul finishes this chapter sharing a little more about being comforted. Verse 13, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So Paul finishes with reminding them of the ultimate reason he's so comforted. He's comforted by the reality that Titus came to him and was able to share the Corinthians' response of repentance to the sin that they were in. But he also is encouraged by how the Corinthians received the man that he sent them. You see, Paul writes 1 Corinthians, doesn't have a clue how they respond, and before he hears how they respond, he sends Titus to them for the purpose of ministering to them and also kind of getting an idea of where they're at and how they have responded And so if they didn't respond well to his letter, they most likely would not have responded well to the person that he sent. And so if they read that letter and they thought, man, who are you to say these things to us, Paul? We don't want anything to do with you. We don't agree with any of these things that you said. And then all of a sudden Titus shows up and says, hey, guys, Paul sent me. Well, yeah, we don't want anything to do with you, Titus. We don't care about Paul. He just wrote us this letter that we're totally rejecting. So, you know, the fact that they not only received the letter in a godly way that leads to repentance, they also received Titus in a wonderful way that showed that they were actually repentant as well. Uh, and he tells us of the things that they have, uh, that Titus remembers their obedience, how with fear and trembling you received him. Uh, therefore, I rejoice in the confidence of you and everything. Uh, and so this is a great thing that he recognizes of, I see the change in you guys. I saw the sin. I shared about the sin. And I'm so encouraged that you've responded with repentance and that you responded with receiving Titus. And these are all wonderful things that comfort me and bring me to a place of rejoicing. You know, when someone repents especially someone that we have taken the time to boldly, you know, just share with. It should bring comfort to us. It should bring us to a place where we praise God for that. You know, I think something that's so fascinating and wonderful, Luke 15.10 tells us, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, when people repent, heaven rejoices. Angels in heaven rejoice when they see us repent. And that's kind of an amazing thought to realize what we do here impacts the angels in heaven, especially when someone comes to a place because they realize how significant repentance is. They realize how important it is and they're rejoicing over just one sinner. And sometimes we think, well, if I share the gospel and only one person comes to the Lord, hey, one person is enough to make all the heavens rejoice. It should be enough for us to get out and proclaim the gospel. But, you know, I want to encourage you with the comfort that Paul wants us to see here. When someone else repents, it should comfort us. When we repent, it should bring comfort. We should see all the things that it can do for us. But the challenge that we have, that we face each day when we sin is the question, is that sorrow from our sin going to just make us feel bad? 
and nothing else? Or is it going to lead us to a place where we make a decision to say, I am going to turn away from this sin, not only in action, but also I'm going to have a change of mind towards it. And I want to encourage you with something very important. If you're willing to repent, if you're willing to turn away from whatever sin it is that's in your life, God has the power and desires to give you the power to do it. And I think too often we buy into the lie that I'm completely addicted. I could never turn away. I've been doing this for so long. God can't help me get free from this sin. And it's not true. There's no sin that you're doing that God doesn't have the power to deliver you from, that God doesn't have the power to help you turn away from it. Now, the problem that we have too often is we're not looking to God. We're not depending on God. We're not spending time with God. And so we continue to fail in that. But if you look to God, you spend time with God, you trust God and his power and strength to give you what you need to turn away from those things, God definitely desires to and will give you that. And so I just want to close this morning taking some time to put this into practical uh, application. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Maybe you're here and you know, you're all good. Everything that you've done, you've already repented of, then you can just pray for you know, somebody else. But if you're here this morning and there's a sin in your life or there's sins plural in your life that you haven't dealt with, that you haven't confessed to the Lord, I would first say, let's just start just between you and him. This isn't going to be for everyone else to hear. Just between you and God, you confess your sin and ask him to help you to truly turn away from it. Not just to feel bad about it and not just to be forgiven of it, but to turn from it, to stop doing it. And so, and remember the wonderful truth in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so let's take that truth on board. Let's take some time if you need to, just to come before the Lord uh, and deal with any sin that you have in your life. And then uh, we'll just have some time of uh, quiet and I'll close with some prayer.